Good morning. Welcome to Regeneration. My name is Albert, and uh, I haven't met you. I'd love to meet you. I don't know if you'd like to meet me, but I would like to meet you. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, thank you for your people, and I ask, Lord, for your blessing upon them, that our eyes, our mind, our heart, our spirit, our soul would be open to what you have to say, as you just use this kind of uh, clankly mouthpiece to speak your word, that you would go forth. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is the uh, final message in our Holy Spirit series for Sunday services. We're going to be moving on to Wednesday. And that's where we're going to have a, a midweek service on Wednesday, second Wednesday of the month. That's where we're going to kind of continue on by exploring those spiritual gifts. And so come join us. The first one's July 10th, 7 p.m. It's going to look a little bit different from a typical Sunday service, but for the most part, the same. A little different, but the same. So it's kind of like that. So for our last message of the series, let's look at Ephesians chapter 1. And we're going to start at verse 3. Let me read that to you while you guys are turning there because we're going to be in other verses there as well. So once you turn there, you can keep your finger there. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now Paul went on to write about these magnificent spiritual blessings pointing out how we have been adopted by God. We've been redeemed, forgiven of our sins and have obtained an inheritance as his children. And then we come to verses 13 and 14 of Ephesians chapter 1. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now, let's look at that last part of verse 13. We're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now, a little bit of context here. When Paul wrote this letter to the Ephesian church, Ephesus was one of the most important seaports in all of Asia Minor. And the remains of that city are there today in Ephesus. It's a major attraction. If you go to Turkey, you have to go to Ephesus, right? All the tour boats have to stop by Ephesus. You have to do this. And if you've been there, you know that you've stepped into a very significant place of antiquity just by visiting that city. It is awesome. Now, back in Paul's day, Ephesus was a main trading port. And most of the trading and commerce that took place between anywhere east of the Roman Empire and the Roman Empire itself went through Ephesus. So Ephesus was this import-export center of the world. This is where Costco started. So imagine this. Huge groups of desert merchants coming from the east, they would bring their goods to trade with the people of the Roman Empire. It's like people outside the United States, they want to trade with us, right? Because we have a huge GDP. So Roman Empire, we got to go there. We got to go to Ephesus to trade our stuff. And so merchants throughout the Roman Empire, they would know this. They would know that this place was this incredible trading expo. And so you can imagine all the business activity that was happening there. It was the Wall Street of the Roman Empire. And so the merchants from Rome would travel there to conduct their business because Ephesus was the main trading port to anyone east of the Roman Empire. But even though Ephesus was the major trading port of the Roman Empire in Asia Minor, Rome was the place of distribution throughout the Roman Empire. 
So I take that back. Costco actually started in Rome, not Ephesus, because it's all about distribution. Okay, so while the major port of Asia Minor was in Ephesus, the major port city in Rome was this place called Petioli. So what the merchants would do was they would buy their goods in Ephesus and then they would send them on to Petioli for the distribution within the Roman Empire. And in sending them off to Petioli, the merchants needed a way to identify what they purchased, what was theirs. And so what they did was they would pack all their goods for the shipment off to Petioli. And from Ephesus, they would pack all this stuff and they would seal their packages with a wax seal. And so this wax seal would have this imprint of the merchant's signet ring. And that marked that those goods belonged to the guy with this ring, this signet that wax seal that belongs to that guy. So the goods would leave Ephesus on a ship to Pityoli, and when it arrived at Pityoli, the servants of that merchant, they would be waiting at the port. And as the goods were unloaded, the servants looked for their respective imprints of their master's signet ring. And so they'd look for their master's signet ring imprint in that wax seal, and that's how they'd know that the respective goods belonged to their master who purchased it back in Ephesus. That seal was the mark of ownership. Back to verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The Ephesians were told by Paul that God sealed them and put his imprint on ownership upon them. Right? That signet ring imprint from God is the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit. And those of us who have the Holy Spirit, we can be confident that we belong to God because you're imprinted. Jesus Christ purchased us from the slave market. See, we were held bondage to sin, enslaved by sin but purchased us from that enslavement. He put his seal upon us and he designated us as his children. He adopted us. He gave us the right to his inheritance. Paul wrote this to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 through 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. I am not my own. You are not your own. As a follower of Jesus, I am not to live as I want. I am not to determine the course of my life as whatever I want it to be. I belong to God who purchased me from the slave market. He purchased me and he put his seal of ownership upon me. So now I live in agreement, in alignment with his will for me because I belong to him. Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. We were ransomed. You and I were redeemed. We were purchased, not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of of Christ. We were bought by God, not as property, not as property, but claimed as his children, adopted with full inheritance rights. Once we were slave goods, 
Jesus came and he purchased us. He put his seal upon us. He stamped us with his seal, with his ring, signifying that you belong to him now. And then he sent the ship off to port. And we're on our port to heaven. There's this heavenly port awaiting us, our petiole. And when we reach that port, which is when our lives end, we will disembark and he will claim us as his own because we have this seal upon us. And he will say, that's my daughter. That's my son. They're slaves no longer. I purchased them. My seal is upon them. My imprint is on them. She is a slave no longer. And all that I have is theirs, because they're my kids, and they have rights to my inheritance. So come on, get off the boat. Let's go. Romans chapter 8, verses 15 through 17. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Adopted as children of God. We are heirs, given an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for us, being guarded by God's power. When those of us who have faith for salvation through Jesus, when we've reached our home port, Jesus will be there waiting for us, claiming us as His, as His children as his fellow heirs with Christ. The psalmist wrote in Psalm chapter 31, verse 19, Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. We took a look at being sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit in verse 13. Now let's move on to verse 14 there and take a look at the first part of that verse who is the guarantee of our inheritance. Now, the who in verse 14 is in reference to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. Now let's take a look at that word guarantee in verse 14. The Greek word for guarantee is the word arabon. Now arabon, the definition of that is money which in purchases is given as a pledge or down payment that the full amount will subsequently be paid. The guarantee was the down payment for the full amount to be paid later. Now, when making a large purchase, like a house, we put down a deposit, right? We put down a down payment to show that we have earnest money, that we are serious about carrying through on that purchase. And so if you do less than 20%, then you have to buy insurance for that because they want to guarantee that you are going to do that. You're going to do what you said. So the deposit proves the sincere intention on whether I intend to eventually complete that transaction. 
Now, I use the example of a house, but it could be anything of value. Right? It could be a car, it could be jewelry, whatever is of value to you. So say you put something of value on Craigslist and someone interested in your item comes by and they ask you to hold that item for them while it's on sale so that they can go get a loan and purchase that item from you in full. So yesterday we had this yard sale out there and so someone goes up to our staff and says like, you know, I really want this bike. I'll come right back and pay you for it. So what are we going to do? We want to deposit, right? You don't want to deposit from them to prove their intent on buying the item. Otherwise, you might lose out on the sale from all the potential buyers that are roaming out there, all the hundreds of people that are going there who want that bike, but you can't sell it because you promised to that guy. But the only way you would really want to hold that is if that person gave you a deposit because that would show that they were definitely interested in your item instead of being just stuck waiting for this guy to return who says he's interested, but he never shows up. There's nothing to prove that he was serious about purchasing your item. And there is no obligation for them to return to complete the transaction because they didn't give you anything. There is no deposit. They can take off and it doesn't matter. What's happening here in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 14, God wants us to know that he's really, really serious about redeeming us. He's going through with this transaction. He's fully intent on completing the purchase. And to prove that, he's given the Holy Spirit as a guarantee. Guarantee. This is the down payment of our inheritance until we acquire full possession of it. And when we experience the fruit of the Holy Spirit, Galatians 5, chapter 22 through 23. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's just a down payment. You ever thought about that? It's just a down payment. There's so much more to come. That's just a down payment. The inheritance is so much more. God is showing us that he is serious, that he's earnest in his intent to fully redeem us. Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed, for the day of redemption. You get that picture again? The seal? God has sealed the followers of Jesus with his imprint of ownership. His signet ring imprint. The Holy Spirit is upon us. Those who by faith claim Jesus to be their Lord. The Holy Spirit is his down payment to show us that he fully intends to carry out his redemption of his children. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. There will be a day when we will come to the home port of heaven. We'll arrive at that home port and he will claim us as his own. He already made the deposit, the Holy Spirit, to prove how serious he was about redeeming us. It's paid. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 through 22. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Paul wrote about this seal and this guarantee to both the Corinthian and the Ephesian churches. God gave us the Holy Spirit as a guarantee, a deposit for our redemption. We have been sealed by God. The Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5, 
He who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Do you see this wonderful guarantee, gift, this person God has given us in the Holy Spirit? We know Jesus finished the transaction of our redemption, and he's claimed us as his own. Now back to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30 for a moment. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now what grieves the Holy Spirit? We need to look back a few verses, starting at verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. So lying grieves the Holy Spirit. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So being angry in itself is not what grieves the Holy Spirit. Let's not get this confused. It's the sin accompanying the anger that grieves the spirit. It's not anger in itself. And that sin gives opportunity for the devil to take advantage of your sinful state. Anger is an emotion. God created it. And sometimes it can be a good thing, actually. To be angry at injustice is not a bad thing. But to act out against that injustice in a sinful way grieves the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? Verse 28, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So stealing grieves the Holy Spirit. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. So corrupt talk, dirty stories, foul jokes, rumors that tear people down, things that are of unwholesome nature, those things grieve the Holy Spirit. And then it gets to verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. We're given what grieves the Holy Spirit before verse 30 and after it, and this is the context of verse 30 continued in verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Now, there's this classic case of bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice, and it's found in 2 Samuel chapters 15 through 17 in the person of Ahithophel. And it led to Ahithophel hanging himself. Now, who was Ahithophel? Ahithophel was one of King David's top counselors, one of his top aides, who was also a very good and trusted friend. And so David wrote a couple psalms about Ahithophel in Psalm 41 and in Psalm 55. So let me share with you these psalms. Psalm 41, verse 9. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Psalm 55, verses 12 through 14, and then verses 20 through 21. For it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together. Within God's house we walked in the throng. Jumping down to verse 20. My companion stretched out his hand against his friends. He violated his covenant. His speech was smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. 
That was Ahithophel, who became bitter, wrathful, angry, clamorous, slanderous, and malicious toward David. He abandoned the king's court with those attitudes and came back to serve Absalom, King David's son, who wanted to overthrow his father's throne and claim the kingdom as his own. When Absalom decided to lead his army of conspirators against his father, Ahithophel was right there to offer his valuable counsel on how to defeat King David, his once very good friend. And so as this coup entered Jerusalem, David and his household and his men had already escaped the city, but David left ten concubines to keep the house. So when Absalom came to Jerusalem and he found his father gone, he asked Ahithophel for counsel as what step to take next, because they already breached the city of David, they're at the house of David, and they don't find him there, and Ahithophel is so bitter and angry and malicious towards David that he's not there for them to take over and kill him, that he told Absalom in 2 Samuel chapter 16, verse 21, go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father, and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened." You see the hate? You see the malice that this guy had? Ahithophel's malice against David as he wanted to publicly disgrace David in front of all who stayed behind in the kingdom. But that maliciousness wasn't enough. His bitterness and anger drove him to another idea. 2 Samuel chapter 17, verses 1 through 3. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Let me choose 12,000 men, and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged and throw him into panic, and all the people who are with him will flee. I will strike down only the king, and I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man, and all the people will be at peace. You see the bitterness, the wrath, the malice. You see his clamoring, wanting to kill King David himself. This is what bitterness does. Bitterness can turn someone who used to be a familiar friend, who used to take counsel together, who used to serve with one another in God's house, and turn that person into an adversary. That's Ahithophel. And that can be you and me when we let bitterness settle into our being, when we act upon the anger. David was no dummy, though. He wasn't Israel's greatest king by luck or by coincidence. David planted a mole, one of his trusted friends, Hushai. He planted him in the center of Absalom's camp. Hushai was this elderly guy who was also on David's council, one of the oracles to David. And Hushai wanted to go with David, but David said to him this in 2 Samuel chapter 15, verses 33 through 34. If you go on with me, you will be a burden to me. Because he was older. He would slow the group down. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in time past, so now I will be your servant. Then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. So stay back and be my OG James Bond, Sean Connery spy. Like you, you stay there. So when Ahithophel proposed to go after David to kill him, Absalom asked for Hushai's counsel on Ahithophel's idea. 
2 Samuel chapter 17, verses 5-7. through 7. Then Absalom said, Call Hushai the archite also, and let us hear what he has to say. And when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom said to him, Thus has Ahithophel spoken. Shall we do as he says? If not, you speak. Then Hushai said to Absalom, This time the counsel that Ahithophel has given is not good. Hushai said, You know that your father and his men are mighty men, and that they are enraged like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Besides, your father is expert in war. He will not spend the night with the people. So if you go after him now, you're going to risk losing. Now skip down to verse 11. But my counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you from Dan to Beersheba, as the sand by the sea for multitude, and that you go to battle in person. So relax. Build up your army and then go after your father. Then you'll win. You'll have a bigger army. Hushai is really just buying time for David. Now skip down to verse 14. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. So Ahithophel's brilliant plan thwarted by Hushai. Ahithophel knew they had to strike when the iron was hot. He knew what a great military leader David was. And if David was given more time to reassemble, to reset, Absalom will in no way win against his father, and that revolt would be over. Now jump to verse 23. When Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey and went off to his own city. He set his house in order and hanged himself, and he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. Ahithophel knew he was done. If they didn't carry on this plan, he's done. Because if he wasn't allowed to go after David, David would mount a comeback and David would win. And he already burnt that bridge with David. There's no turning back. So the only option he saw for himself was to kill himself. Now, why was Ahithophel so bitter, angry, and malicious toward David? What happened that drove him to wrath and clamor and slander? Well, his granddaughter was Bathsheba. Who says the Bible's boring? <laughs> Eliam was Bathsheba's father, right? 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 3. Ahithophel was Eliam's father. 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 34. David had an adulterous affair with Ahithophel's granddaughter Bathsheba. And then... He had his grandson-in-law, Uriah, a very noble guy, killed in battle. He had him murdered. That drove him to bitterness, anger, wrath, and malice. Is that something to be angry about? Absolutely. Anger is not bad. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, Be angry and do not sin. Be angry. Don't sin. It's okay to be angry, but don't sin in your anger. Because if you sin in your anger, you grieve the Holy Spirit and you end up destroying yourself. See, you might be justified in your anger, just like Ahithophel was, but if your sin in your anger is leading you to doing sinful things, you are hurting yourself more than you are hurting the one that has wronged you. Ahithophel let the bitterness fester in him, and he allowed the anger to drive him to sin, to be malicious, wrathful, and he grieved the Holy Spirit, 
Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice because those things grieve the Holy Spirit and they will harm you. Amen. Look at Ahithophel. Then in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul wrote about actions which are improper for followers of Jesus. Starting in verse 3. But... Sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words." For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So don't be deceived into thinking that you can do the things mentioned in Ephesians 5 and still inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be fooled. We can't hold postures such as bitterness, malice, grieving the Holy Spirit, and expect to inherit the kingdom of God. You wouldn't feel home in heaven anyway. Nor can we conduct ourselves in the actions we find in Ephesians 5 and expect to have a good relationship with God. You wouldn't fit in anyway. Rather, we are to be as Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Now, I know some of you have had some very traumatic histories. Some of you have experienced evil that has caused immense pain in your life. And the idea of forgiveness is so far from you, or it's just this idea, and it's going to just be an extremely difficult thing for you to even approach. I want to encourage you to seek God in those matters, not just to flip a switch and say, okay, I'm going to forgive, but to seek God in that. Let him minister to you because he can heal your wounds, even your scars that have kind of already glossed over, but yet they're still painful to the touch. He can still heal those things. And he wants to free you of any bitterness, and he wants to free you of the malice that can develop because you've held on to anger. It is okay for you to be angry to the person who has offended you and hurt you, but don't sin. The Holy Spirit can and will set you free if you have faith in him to perform that miracle for you. Just a little bit of faith because you have been bought with a price. Jesus paid for it. He put a down payment of the Holy Spirit on it. You have been sealed and you have been stamped with his signet ring that you belong to him. The Holy Spirit is conforming us into the image of Jesus and he can empower you to forgive. It might be the farthest thing from your mind right now, but just be open to him. You don't have to flip a switch right now, but pray to him because it's part of the healing process even though it may seem counterintuitive to want to forgive someone. Now, if you're stuck or you feel like you just haven't progressed from your hurts, maybe this is the threshold 
that forgiveness, that idea of forgiveness, that posture of forgiveness. It's not the flipping of the switch to say, I forgive, just the posture that you're looking toward the idea of forgiveness. Maybe that is all you need for you to jump over that threshold so that you can progress, so that you can heal. And maybe bitterness still has a root in your heart, and anger still has a root in your heart. And you won't heal completely with bitterness because bitterness doesn't allow for that. Bitterness destroys. Bitterness neutralizes growth. The antidote to bitterness and its destruction is forgiveness. And depending on how deep that wound is, you might need something that is supernatural, like the Holy Spirit. Know that the Holy Spirit is for you. He is your biggest cheerleader to free you from the bondage of bitterness and malice and wrath. You will not be completely free from your past wounds until you have forgiven. But it starts just by looking there. You don't have to flip a switch. Just look towards forgiveness. Have the posture, the attitude of forgiveness. And the Holy Spirit will do the rest. He will set you free. John chapter 8, verse 36. So if the Son sets you free... We're on our ship to heaven, aren't we? We're on our way. You will be free indeed. So be free. Jesus set you free from the bondage of slavery to sin. You can also be free of your bitterness, your anger, your wrath, your clamor, slander, and malice by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, some of us do have very deep wounds and very deep hurts. And Lord, you're such the gentle healer. I pray that you would touch those people's wounds and heal them of it. And Lord, I do realize that there is something simultaneous that needs to happen, an element of faith on our part for that to happen. Just like the guy with the withered hand, he had to stick his hand out as you were healing him. Those lepers that wanted to be healed, they had to approach you as you were healing them. Peter walking on water. Peter had to step on water as you allowed him to step on water. There's this element of faith and acting in simultaneous action that needs to happen, Lord. And so I pray for those who are struggling to cross that threshold of forgiveness. I pray, Lord, that you would give them the posture and the attitude to look towards forgiveness. And Holy Spirit, please, as you have already been given as a deposit, Lead them to ultimate freedom in you, Jesus, because you've already paid the price with your blood. In Jesus' name, amen.